Welcome to the Life in the Stocks podcast, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Matt Stocks. I'm the host, and the show features unedited, in-depth, candid conversations with a wide range of musicians, actors, comedians, and creatives. If you're not already, be sure to subscribe to Life in the Stocks on your favorite podcast platform. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and indeed all major podcast platforms. Be sure to give me a follow on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok as well, at MattStocksDJ. That way you can keep up to date with all of my live Q&A dates, my DJ performances, and of course, who's coming up on the show as well. But without further ado, let's crack on with the show, shall we? Here we go. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Please put your hands together for the main man, Mr. Glenn Matlock. Pull up a pew, Glenn. <laughs> Have a little slug from Grandpa's cough medicine. Just coffee, ladies and gentlemen. Good evening, everybody. How you doing? Right, I, 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 before you start, you okay. just reminded me of a daft story, and you do want daft stories. You mentioned Clem Burke. Clem Burke, Slim Jim. Slim, oh. Slim Jim. Uh, Jesse Mallon. Yep. Stevie, Stevie Van, Van Zandt. Zandt. Well, Stevie Van Zandt, right. Let's go. Through Clem Burke, Clem Burke used to play with Nancy Sinatra, right? And, and everyone he, ever, right? Then, then, well, then he didn't play with her because he was touring with Blondie, but she played at the Royal Festival Hall with a different drummer playing, but Clem had a night off, so he invited me down to go and see Nancy Sinatra. It was great. And we ended up backstage, and he introduced me, and it was fantastic. Gave me a little kiss on the cheek. Great. Amazing. Lovely. And that was that, a good show. And then maybe about a year later, she was playing again. Clem wasn't playing again. She was doing the Shepherd's Bush Empire. Went down. I think I went down with Slim Jim, actually. Ended up backstage, walked in. She went, oh, hi, Glenn, how are you doing? I was like, fuck, I fancy Sinatra. A little kiss on the trip, great. <laughs> a few years after that, there was a thing at the London Palladium 
and it was the opening night of a live Frank Sinatra show, which, believe it or not, he was dead. But it was really good. They had a live orchestra, they had dancers, and they had him on a screen, either side, singing live. I don't know how they did it, but it was really good. And then there was a do afterwards, and I went downstairs, and I bumped into not only Steve Van Zandt and Nancy Sinatra and Dave Clark, <laughs> who lives in Maidavale, I live down the road in Maidavale. And the last time I seen him before that, I could see his backside <laughs> sticking out the freezer for Cook, you know, that kind of one up from Marks and Spencer's kind of thing. Anyway, he was there. <laughs> hi, Glenn. And Steve went, oh, hi, Glenn. And Dave Clark went, hi, Glenn. And Nancy Sinatra went, I th- and I was with my mate. I thought, watch this. She's going to give me a kiss and cheat. She went, who are you? Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's crestful. <laughs> that's cold, Nancy. And maybe she was building you up just to have that moment to toy well, maybe, with you. Yeah, but but in <laughs> fairness, she had had to give a speech about her dad had passed away, so I'll let her off. Give her time. a pass, but not next time. Well, let's just jump straight into this. Talking of backsides, we were just talking upstairs, and I was like, obviously, you know, hang on, you, you might want to qualify. <laughs> Well, you're going to qualify, hopefully, oh, okay. in a moment's time. We were talking about um, Glenn's time with Iggy Pop. And he said, I had to leave because I just got tired of seeing little Iggy. <laughs> yeah, well, I did. It was basically, is Iggy's renowned for airing himself, right? <laughs> but if a, somebody's going to air themselves at a big concert, they have to get ready to air themselves. And they normally do it with their back to the audience, but right in front of the bloody bass player, which was me. And I got fed up with saying that, and it's not that impressive. (laughs) (laughs) How long were you with Iggy? How long? Uh, Only about a year and a half. I got roped in to do... Well, I've been in the Rich Kids, and the Rich Kids was falling apart, and I didn't quite know what to do next. And I was sitting at home, and this is in the days before mobile phones and stuff, and I thought, well, it wouldn't be great. I don't know what I'm going to do, you know. It wouldn't be great if the phone rang. I'm not kidding you. Like, two minutes later, the phone rang. I picked it up, and I said, hello. And they said, there's Clem Outlook there. And I said, yeah. And this guy said, well, you don't know me, but my name's Peter Davis, but I manage Iggy Pop, and we're in town, and we're looking for a bass player, and we wondered if you come down and have a drink. And I said, well, where are you? And they said, the Athenaeum in Piccadilly. I thought, Ooh. I said, who's buying? And they said, we are. And I was down like a shop. Taxi! Got on like house on fire. And um, I was in a band. And they were, they, they were short of a bass player because the guy who played bass on the New Values album was a guy called Jackie Clark. He used to play with like Ike and Tina Turner and all that lot. And um, he was going to play second guitar and they didn't have a bass player. So I ended up doing it. The next thing, I'm on tour around Europe with that. So we toured Europe. Um, got up to some kind of scrapes, and then we made that Soldier album, which was his next album. Then I went on to to the States with him, and it's fantastic. The first time I ever went to New York, this was in 1979, we played at the Palladium on Canal Street in New York. It was Halloween. Back then in England, nobody really knew what Halloween was unless you was a kind of a Puritan or something like that, and I pointed out. <laughs> and um, the whole audience was in fancy dress and the cramp supported us oh, and wow. backstage oh, wow. I again I was very fortunate it was Debbie Harry dressed as a witch who gave me a kiss on the cheek and I didn't wash for a couple of days after that <laughs> so that was my first time in New York it was cool so. and it's when you think about that time do you wish in hindsight apart from the fact that you would have had to put up with seeing Little Iggy 
you know, too many times. Do you wish you'd, you know, yeah, kind of explored I, I would, that relationship I, I, a little more? I would more? have liked to play with Iggy a bit more, but a few other things happened. I was, there was a guy who sort of signed Iggy to Arista. He was running Arista, and his name was Charles Leverson, and he was a big shot, big shot lawyer, but he took over Arista. And he said to me in a quiet moment, he said, what are you doing? I said, well, I'm playing with Iggy. And he said, no, but what are you really doing? I said, well, I'm playing with Iggy. And he said, well, don't you have a side project or something? And I went, why? What? He said, well, we'd be more than interested in it if you did. And I thought, oh. And I started putting together this thing called The Spectres with Danny Casto. Me was going to sign our house that we didn't in the end. And it kind of, then I turned my head a little bit. Um, and then I got fed up saying Iggy's old man. And <laughs> it was all... All that really, but really, I thought maybe I should have hung with it a bit longer. Are you still in touch with him? Not really, but if he walks in now, we say hi. Funnily enough, ladies and gentlemen, joining us tonight, <laughs> it's Jim, well, man. Everybody's got to be somewhere, but if he's in the in the Hamps, West Hampstead crickle with borders, I'd be surprised. But every, everybody's got to be somewhere. But I did go and see him. I think the last, here he is. That the last time I saw him was. We played the Isle of Wight Festival with the Pistols, and he was sporting this. And they take over this hotel. It's like a travel lodge in Sea Sea Cliff Park or something. It's the dressing rooms. And we was in one, and he was in the room next door. So I went and with my son Louis. It was about ten at the time, and I went. Right, nobody knocks on the door like that too again. He went right the door open like that. And he saw me, he went, oh, hi. No, he looks on the door like that. And my son, Louie, went, oh, hi, little fella. Come, come in. Right, so we went in. And you know, like these sort of cheap hotel rooms, there's a little narrow bit because there's a bathroom on the right. And then the room opens out a bit. So we go in like that. And on the bed is Iggy's missus, all dressed up like in sort of slightly bondage gear and quite a big girl, and it's bursting out. And my son, Louie, went... <laughs> And Iggy went, oh, hi, hi, fella, this is my wife. <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny, but he's cute, fine. But he was good. When we played, he also supported us when we did the show at um, Finsbury Park, which was the big Pistols Reformation thing, and we'd done two shows. Was anybody shows. here at that in 96? Yeah. 96. We'd done a couple of shows beforehand. We did one in Munich somewhere in a football stadium. It was a bit rank, to be honest. We did one in... Midsummer's Day in Finland, which to get there, we had to drive up the side of this track where there was an ostrich farm. And there was some Finnish bloke out of his head, but he was all in the coach going to the gig. And he's got a wheelbarrow full of beer. And it was about a kilometre long, this track, and he would not get out of fucking way. And we had to wait till this bloke... And we did the gig, and everybody was stoned, and we might as well not have been there. So we'd done two shows, which weren't... And then we had to play at Finsbury Park, we had to, to go out live on the radio, make a video, um, make a live album. That, the Filthy Luke Live comes from that. Burst through this big screen, play in front of 36,000 people. And we, that was the biggest crowd we'd ever played to. Because when I was in the band first time around, the biggest show we did was probably about 350 people, right, which people forget about. But I'd made a mistake when we had to burst through the screen of watching the night before Spinal Tap. And the only thing I could think, and, and the paper was like really thick cartridge paper, you know. And I, the only thing I could think about was um, 
the pod bass, scene the bass that, player yeah. in the pod, you know. Like, oh. Anyway, the, the roadies kind of slit it slightly with a with a um, a Stanley knife, and we we got through it, and we did the gig, and it all came together. Everything came together, and it was like really good. And I remember getting there earlier. I was the first one there, went in the portal cabins, there, those dressing rooms, and was the first one from the band. There's somebody in there, blinking Liam Gallagher's trying to nick our booze. And they were really big at the time, and I took great pleasure in going, oh, you, fuck off. <laughs> right. was, oh, sorry, well, I was only trying to get it. Oh, right, that was that. But, and I got there to see Iggy. So I saw the end of Iggy's set, and I was at the side of the stage, and when he came up all sweaty, he went, hey, man, how you doing? He said, what, what are you guys doing backstage? Throwing up? Me, you know, Meany and me must have been really nervous with this big, massive crowd, and it was kind of cool because he sort of nailed what was going on. So I like Jim. He's good. I think he's probably America's greatest living poet, lyrically. He's my number one dream podcast guest. I love the guy. I just think he's the the guy. Um, that '96 tour was that a fond and happy time in your life? Looking back, it must have been nice to have, you know, kind of revisited that legacy and you, you know kind of put your own like take control of it basically because it slipped out of all your hands did it feel like that going yeah into it? and i think it had for everybody and i think it was a way of building some bridges a little bit and i was i mean what happened was in 95 i went to america um just hang out with a mate of mine called calvin hayes who was mickey mosom was living over there, and he said he'd found this singer, and he said, well, don't you come over with Steve and we'll try this guy out, and we did, and he was a great guy, but he wasn't really the singer. that. Wanted. So I had a bit of time in my hands, and he said, well, it's not working out, what are you going to do? And I'm staying with him, and his missus, and he said, I said, you know what, I haven't seen Steve Jones for like 17 years back then. And he went, oh. Anyway, the next day he came back with a piece of paper with Steve's number on it. He said, call him, and I went, and then this went on for about a week. And he said, call him. And um, in the end, I did. And Steve went, oh, I heard he was in town. Come over. And as soon as we got over to Steve, Steve said, let's go and see Rotten. And I'm like, oh, man. you know. So we went to see John. And then when we was with John and Steve, we said, let's call up Paul back in England. And time difference, the phone didn't answer. And we went out. For lunch, I ended up paying, and John said, "Oh, I was going to get that one, yeah, right." <laughs> well, here we here we go again. And then by the time we we got back to jo John's or Steve's, I can't remember. Paul called back, and it just set a whole train in motion. And Steve had this manager, Anita, who he met. Steve had gone over there with professionals, never came back, and was kind of destitute for a bit. And he was walking up and down Hollywood Boulevard all day long. And there was this woman that um, couldn't start her Porsche. So Steve hotwired it for her. <laughs> and then they got talking, and she manages the sex pistols to this day. You know. So it's kind of, kind of funny, you know, the back catalogue stuff. Um, but anyway, it's set the, the crime does pay, is the moral of that story. <laughs> well, she does quite well out of it. Yeah. It's, I think, quite a special thing because whatever the personal differences between the four of you, you're the only four in this world that know what it's like to be an original Sex Pistol and there's that shared history there that only you four know and understand. Yeah, so we've we, we got something in common that only four people in the world have. You know, when we get in a room, plug in, it sounds like pistols. Whether it's ever going to happen again, I doubt it. Um, but it's some, at that time, we saw it as something to be celebrated, but 
you know, people will become more... I think as people get older, they, they don't change. They become more like what they actually are. And, um, you know, if they've been given enough rope. Um, so, yeah, there you go. But yeah, I thought it was good when we did it. You know? Was that the best of the reunion tours, do you think, the first one? Or did it get better? Well, people said when we did Br- Brixton Academy last time around it was good and that tour was good but I thought it was just good, it was good each time I think it's just you're kind of tapping into a mood of the people and the people put onto you what they're feeling at, at the time but you know when we did the thing in 96 it was when the Euros had been on and we had Southgate and somebody else introducing us on stage and I thought Paul Cook had sorted it out and somebody asked me the other day, who did that? And I said, Paul did it. And so I spoke to Paul and he said, it was nothing to do with me. It was just there. So I don't know how they happened to do it, but there you go. Let's go back to the rich kids, if that's all right. Because when I started DJing, when I was a student, I got into vinyl. I just liked the feel of it and I enjoyed playing records, still do. Um, and I used to go and shop in this record shop in Exeter where I was a student. And there was this guy who'd man the, the counter and he'd save me back records because he knew what I liked. Uh, and one day I went in and he had that rich kids record and he's like, you got to hear this. And there's a tune on there, Put You in the Picture. Oh, yeah. Which I just, every DJ set I did, I'd play it without fail. And it just had this energy, like I kind of like, used to look at it as like a pogo guaranteed instigator like you put that on and it's going to have that effect on the crowd and when i saw you at the viva the rock awards with with midge and you did the rich kids show i was like please play put me in the picture and you didn't play it but it's still an amazing show we did or we didn't play it you didn't play it oh i was Why didn't we play it? devastated Glenn. but it was still great and i just you know obviously you got to work with mick ronson on that record and i wonder if you could just tell us a bit about your memories of making the album and whether it was a, a happy and creative time in your life obviously just out of that you know that time shit show that was the pistols was it like a new lease of life for you creatively yeah, and personally? Yeah, it was initially. And, it, and the, the funny thing was the, the core of the band came together re- really easy. A lot of people don't know Steve New was the guitarist in the Rich Kids. He actually was in the Sex Pistols for a week. We was looking for a second guitarist at one stage. And Steve, um, yeah, Steve came down with his art school teacher who he was having a scene with. He was only about, six, just turned 16. His teacher, brilliant. Yeah, she she was older, Rose, right? It was lovely. And um, he was in the band for about a week, but we didn't really need another one. I think Paul Cook had suggested it because he was playing for time because he wanted to pass out his electrician's apprenticeship at Watley's Brewery. And he did pass out, and it was the same day that we played Chelmsford Maximum Security Prison. And there's a bootleg of it somewhere, and you can hear Paul because he been celebrating with the blokes from Watney's Brewery, he falls off the stool. You can hear him. He don't miss a beat, but you can hear the stool go. Anyway, so Steve was in the band and then I kind of lost touch with him and then it was announced I was leaving. And I went down to Chelsea and we used to drink in this pub called The Roebuck, which is round the corner from Malcolm's Let It Rock shop, you know, World's End now. Um, and um, I went in there, but I hadn't actually been in there for a year and a half. And Steve came in looking for me. Right, and um, he said, what are you doing? What are you going to do? I said, well, I suppose i get band together. And he sort of went, oh, all right, you're in. So that was that. And then either that night or a couple of nights later, I went to see Rockpile with Dave Edmonds and Nick Lowe and um, Billy Bremner, that's the name, and, and Terry the drummer. What's his name? 
Was it Terry Williams or was it the bloke who ended up in the attractions? Who's the guy in the attractions? Come on, we must know. Thomas. Somebody Thomas. Anyway, it was one of those. Anyway, I saw them and this bloke came up to me and started telling me what a great drummer he was. And it was Rusty. So I thought, all right, you're in the band. And he said, no, but I've been playing with a clash and I'm not sure if I'm going to get the gig. And I said, you're in. And he's going, no, blah, blah, blah. I said, mate, you're in. I, I, all, I knew full well that if he wasn't any good, I wouldn't have to have him, but he was in. But he came in well handy because that night, I'm watching Rockpile, and this is, you know, sort of maybe that day or the day before I'd sort of signed a thing that I wasn't going to be in Pistols anymore. And I'm watching the band's just come on, and then this pretty, pretty good-looking American girl comes up to me, and she says, hey, you a Sex Pistol? And there was something I hadn't quite signed yet, and it, so technically I still was. And I went, well, yeah, might be why. She said, well, come outside and I'll fight you. And I said, I said, well, thanks a lot, love, but in that case, I'll watch the band. And the split second that happened, Jake Riviera came up to me and he went, oh, hello, Glenn. What's going on here then? I said, well, you wouldn't believe it. This lovely girl's just invited me outside for a fight. And she said, she said, no, I didn't. I said, yes, you did. And he went, you calling my boiler a liar? And he started swinging at me. He was out of it. But Rusty, who I'd only just met, come up and laid him out. Right, He's definitely in the band now. And I said, how'd you manage that? And he went, well, I used to be Southern England Ballstool Boxing Champion, didn't I? I thought, you're in the band. And then when I introduced, I tried to introduce Rusty to Steve New. They knew each other. Steve had taken Rusty's job over as a runner at WA Records. So it was kind of all in keeping with the same thing. And then we had the search for a singer for a long, long time. But everybody wanted to sound like Johnny Rotten. And the last thing I wanted to do was to be a second division Sex Pistols. I'd already done been the first division one. So I was trying to find a singer who could sing but look the part. And a couple of years prior to that, even before Johnny Rutten was in the Sex Pistols, Malcolm McLaren and Bernard Rhodes had gone to Glasgow looking for old clothes and artefacts and things. They also had an amplifier, something to do with Steve Jones, and they went in the store to try and sell it. And there was a guy there with short hair who heard what was going on, waited outside, came out, and it was Midge. And they got a number for him, and I actually called up Midge from Malcolm's shop. This is maybe... 75 or something like that and said we're getting putting this band together would you be interested and I but I called up and his mum answered the phone and she went I said is is Midge there please and she said who is it I said my name's Glenn I'm calling from London and she went yeah we Jimmy there's somebody on the telephone from London for you anyway Midge came down I explained what was going on and um, he said well actually I'm just starting this project and it looks like it's going to take off which was slick, and they had a number one record and a top ten record, and out of that kind of teeny bop thing, there was something, you know, they had good beginnings of their songs, you know, quite anthemic and all that. Like. But by the time I was getting the rich kids together and tried out every potential singer in London who wasn't really up to what I wanted to do, I was getting quite frustrated, and we had a record deal kind of waiting and management and agents, and I go, oh, what am I going to do? And we was rehearsing in this place in... Little Newport Street, there was a photographer's gallery and it used to be a um, 
a club in the 60s and there was these two old women there running it. I, do you remember the name of it? It was down there. was a rehearsal place downstairs, and she said, "We've had them all down here, you know, the Rolling Stones and the Kinks and all. But you guys are too loud. You'll never get anywhere." Right? And I was like, "Oh, so I'm getting all that from her." And I, and I went out and I went through to a record store. I thought, "What how am I going to do?" Because I'd tried out this singer, and it was the first time we'd heard him with a reasonable PR. And I thought, "This ain't going to work out. What am I going to do?" Went to a record store, flicking through the racks, and I found a Slick album, and they'd been and gone by then. And I thought, "Ooh." So I got my management to call him up, track him down and call him up. And he came down. And he didn't join immediately, but it kind of set a training process. And I thought he had a really distinctive voice, and I thought it would put put the cat amongst the pigeons with the punks a little bit. You know, it was a, a change, whether it was a good thing or not, I don't know, but that's, that was up the hill back, my up the hill backwards way of going about things. And that was it. And that was how the Richards came together. And we had quite a lot in common musically. You know, he likes the small faces, which I love, obviously, and other things. But we spent a lot of time, you know, listening to those four fantastic albums that Bowie made. You know, he did the two with Iggy, Lost for Life and and um, The Idiot, and also Low and Heroes. You know, And I think we was probably, and we just started working with Ronson, and we was probably the only other band in the world, apart from Bo, obviously, who used a harmonizer on the on the snare drum. You know, we, we used to listen to it all the time. So I think there was a bit more going on with the Rich Kids than we was kind of given credit for sonically, anyway. It's an amazing album, and it's you know it still sounds incredible. Uh, and I think at that point as well, music was moving so fast, wasn't it? And to be in that and a part of that time, um, but as you say, certain people I think were hesitant to you know, embrace the, these new directions. Well, yeah, and I think it worked against us, and I think I would say this, but I think it was almost a little bit ahead of our time. I think we were like a bridgehead to bands like Duran Duran would come and see us in Birmingham and spend our Bali. I mean, when Steve had passed away, Midge was mates with Gary Kemp. I know Gary anyway, but he invited him to, we did a Reformation one-off gig, and Gary played, and he said to me, and I'd done this thing with the faces by then, he said to me at rehearsal, he said, you know what, Glenn? He's a little bit younger than me. Most people are these days. But he said, you know what? And he didn't have to say this. Multi-millionaire, done very well, you know, whether you like their stuff or not. He's a good player, good bloke. He said, me doing this must have been what it's like for you playing in the faces. He said, we used to come and queue up when we was 15 and watch her at the Nashville and stuff. Didn't have to say that. And it was, you know, because to me, music is, people say it's like a sea change each time. It's not, it's like a baton race. People pass on their baton to the next generation thing. So I, I think we was a bit pre the new romantic thing. Major and Rusty started the, the new romantic thing really with um, Steve Strange as a side project, the Bizarre thing. It kind of took off, but it also split the band up. But but then also, when I was playing with Iggy Pop, after that, we was in Paris, and we played at Le Palais, um, and then got taken to dinner at Luc- La Coupole, which is a kind of quite, it's all right, but it was kind of, it's got a lot of history, you know, where, People used to pay for their meals with paintings, you know, Picasso or somebody like that. And Malcolm McLaren turned up, he was living there and freeloaded the mill. And I didn't really want him to be there. But he said to me afterwards, he said, Glenn, you probably don't realise this. 
he said, but it's all very well trying to be forging ahead and different in London. He said, but when you went out of town, people who were only just getting into punk probably thought you was trying to take something away from them. That I hadn't really thought about that. So he probably had, maybe we should have sat on the rich kids for another six months or so. And, and to me, it's only like half an album. The ones I like are Hung On You and Marching Men and Ghosts and Strange One and a couple of other things. If it had all been like that, it would have been really good. You know, Hung On You, didn't I say Hung On You? And put you in the picture. I'll put you in the picture. That's a good rocker. But again, put you in the picture because the song, yeah, because Slick had packed up and Midge was in Scotland and the whole guys from Slick had heard about this punk thing and they were trying to do a punk band called PVC2 and they'd actually recorded that on a, an EP that they, they put out. But yeah, that's a good track. Yeah. Was Mick Jones in that band for a, a week as well? Yeah, because when Midge was umming and ahhing a little bit, um, I'd been offered some gigs and I thought I'd just do them anyway. And Mick come and played second guitar. In fact, there's a great tape somewhere. I've got it on the cassette. We supported the Tom Robinson band at their signing gig at the Brecknock before they all went down to Morton's. Anybody remember Morton's in Berkeley Square went down? And I catched the lift after the gig in Tom Robinson's Grey Cortina. We went down there with a whiplash area. It was fantastic, right? But we 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 did a few numbers as a support thing and it was like a bit of a semi-showcase for EMI. But again, wanting to be a bit different. There was a, a, a record that come out I love by the Ruby News, and it was their version of "I Think We're Alone Now." Right? Um, you know, long before um, what's the name? Tiffany. Tiffany did it. Who, in later years, I played at a Camp Freddy gig in at Whiskey Go Go, and got up and did Pretty Vacant with Tiffany singing Pretty Vacant. <laughs> so it all comes around in this kind of. Did she do a good circles. job? Was she good? She was good, yeah. yeah. She's like big heavy metal chick. I said, what are you doing? She said, tomorrow, you know, you want to meet up for a coffee or something? She went, you know, because we sort of had a laugh. And she said, well, I would do, but I'm going to Birmingham. I said, well, Alabama. And she said, no, Birmingham in the Midlands. I said, what are you doing there? She said, well, I've got my mates in a heavy metal band over there. And, you know, she's got like a biker thing on and filled out a bit and all that. So it's kind of funny. You have these preconceptions of people. But anyway, back to this cassette I've got knocking around. We launch into and um what's his name? Roger from Chiswick Records. Roger Armstrong. You can see his Irish voice in the background goes, Hey, it sounds you know that that um Velvet Underground live at Max's and he goes, Yeah, I like a perno or what? You know, perno and the band are playing in the background. We're going He said, It sounds like they're gonna play no, it can't be. Yes, they are. And then we go, me and Mick go, ooh, ooh, and he's going, fantastic, the Ruben. <laughs> so there you go. Did you introduce Mick and Joe Strummer together? Is that right? As I remember it, I did, yes. I remember going to some something at Royal College of Art or something like that. We had our Sex Pistols rehearsal place back then when nobody else had anything in Denmark Street. And I'd invited a few people back to have a jam because we had nothing better to do. And I'm pretty sure it was somebody like Mick and um, Rat Scabies and maybe Brian James and Tony James. And we was walking along Old Compton Street, going back to Denmark Street. 
And round the corner came Joe Strummer, I knew. one And he said, hey, what are you guys doing? And I said, well, he was going to go and have a jam. He said, don't do that. I said, well, no. He said, come and see this guy with me. I said, where? He said, Ronnie Scott's. So we all went round the corner. I said, well, we ain't got any money. He said, oh, I met the guy. He's going to, he'll get us in. I went, oh, right. I'll tell you it is afterwards. So we go round to Ronnie Scott's and the guy goes, hi, Joe, the doorman. And he said, so-and-so said I could bring some friends down tonight, you know. If I want. So he went, well, he said, there seems to be a few of you. <laughs> Joe said, go, go and get him. You know, this was kind of before, or it was between sets or something. So this guy comes out in a big long camel hair coat and a sort of trilby or a pork pie hat. He goes, hi, Joe, what's going on? He said, well, you said, you know, you said I could bring some friends down. He said, yeah. He said, well, I brought some friends down. He went, well, how many of you are there? And we counted out, there's about eight of us. <laughs> And he went, well, hey, hang on a second. And he just happened. I've got to do this. He, do you want me to hold your mic, Len? Yeah, he just happened to have his overcoat on, and he put his hand in his pocket, and he had a pint of Guinness. <laughs> you know, may, maybe it wasn't a full pint, but in there, and he went, mm, 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 let the guys in. And it was Tom Waits before anybody ever. So. And but, didn't. In, but I think that's when Mick met. Joe, for the first time, that's the way I remember it, but it's a long time ago. Don't you say in your book that he didn't, like, the pint was perfect as well? It wasn't just half drunk, it was, like, full to the brim. Well, that's the way I remember it, but he's writing a book, and he got a flower, and he yeah. things up. Uh, with bit. Tom Waits, though, yeah. there's that great interview with him. I can't remember what TV show he's on, and the guy says to him, Tom, you always seem to have a bottle in front of you, and without missing a beat, he goes, well, it's better to have a bottle in front of you than a front of the bottle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Incredible. So when you're on the Anarchy tour, you and um, Mick are hanging out a lot. And wasn't there like a little bit of kind of tension about that fact, which seems strange because you would you'd think, I guess, in naivety or wishful thinking that you guys would have been tight and thick as thieves on the road. But that kind of wasn't the case, was it, with the Clash and the Pistols? Um, well, I don't know. I think they kind of got on with Paul Simon and uh, Stephen Paul. Did. You know, there was people kind of went into little, little factions. Factions. And it's just the way it kind of worked out, really. You know, Stephen Paul were... I mean, I always thought the Pistols, to me, was like not four people. It was like a triumvirate. It was John, me, and Stephen Paul, which were like Fred Flintstone and Barney Rubble, who, I, you know, I like, but they were like a double act to me. And I think that was what was good about it because, you know, what's the most stable thing there is? It's a tripod, you know, it's got, you know, so. And I don't think John saw that. And he always thought it was us three against him. But it is now. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get on with John when you first joined the band? You were writing together. Initially, was it a kind of a good yeah, friendship? very initially. And we, we was, you know, it was a sort of weird thing to be. I don't think we knew what we wanted to do. We just knew we wanted to be in a band. We knew what, what we didn't want to sound like, but we was going to do it anyway. And it just came out the way it came out, really. But we were very connected. I mean, one of the people, I was working in Malcolm's shop, and just down the road was Granny Takes a Trick, where people like, you know, Keith Richards and the Rolling Stones got their clothes from and all that, and people would float between the two things. And Malcolm was friend with Marty Crowell, and Gene, no, Gene Crowell and Marty, blah, 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 blah. 
Um, and Nick Kent was one of the people who, who was mates with Malcolm and would be hanging out over there because there was other under-the-counter things going on in Granny Takes a Trip. But Nick gave us a cassette of a half an album that his mate had produced, and he gave it to us to check out. And one of the songs on it we liked so much that we recalled, we played it live long before the album came out. And the album that came out, his mate was... Um, oh, I had to put my tongue. Um, um, viola. Um, John Cow. He produced... Great crowd tonight, by the way. You're picking it up. Yeah. <laughs> picking up the slack whenever yeah, we need yeah, you. I said this. Let's just do Shiraz. No. <laughs> and um, he produced John from Richmond and Modern Lovers, and it was Roadrunner. But we was doing it even before the record came out. So we were connected. You know, we was in the right place at the right time. Yeah, there was a lot of that back then, wasn't there? It just seemed like alchemic almost uh, and like written in the stars without being too ethereal. Well, there was a lot of it for us. I don't think there was that a lot of it for many other kind of people and stuff, but you kind of think it's like that for all bands, but of course it ain't, you know? So there you go. But we was in the right place at the right time because we all individually put ourselves in the right place and gravitated to this wacky shop down the King's Road where on a Saturday afternoon every weirdo on Oddball would pass through its doors and all kind of went on to do something, you know. Susie from the Banshees, there was a bloke, William Broad used to come in, Billy Idol, you know, the New York Dolls would come in. Um, I actually sold. I was there working there during the week one day and the door opened and Ian, Ian Hunter came in with Mick Ronson, Right? And he wanted a pair of shoes that were in the window. And I had to get every fucking box down. Because he had small feet. I remember, six and a half. And it was this pair of pink loafers, right? So anyway, he decided to buy them. You know, I'm charging them. And the next thing, I'm wrapping them up in a bag. And I hear this clattering. Look round. There's Mick Ronson on the ladder up the top. I said, what on earth are you doing? He said, well, I've got all these shoes down. I can't let you do them. And he's trying to put them all back. I said, what? It was great, but those shoes I sold him a few years later, and it's, I didn't know him then. This is only a long time before the Richards thing. <laughs> He'd ended up playing with um, on the Rolling Thunder tour, right? And um, I think he was probably in Hunter Ronson then. Or uh, maybe it was even the tail end of Mott um, Hoop or what. But anyway, I'd only done the Rolling Thunder tour, and then after the Rich Kids. This movie came out, Ronaldo and Clara, which is interesting, but it's four hours long and take a sandwich if you go and see it. <laughs> so I went to see the first half, got fed up, went this friend I went with and we went out of the pint and come back. When we come back, there's a scene in it where, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, it's about Bob Dylan and Joan Baez Ronaldo and Clara, but they play Ronaldo and Clara, and somebody else plays Bob Dylan, and it's like arty bullshit, basically. But Bob Dylan and Joan Byers are trying to get back to see the pretend Bob Dylan and Joan Byers, but playing a security guard in the hallway with his feet up like that is Mick Ronson, and what's he wearing? The fucking pink loafers I sold him. So I told everybody in Camden Odeon, I sold him then, and they were going, shh. <laughs> 
That's probably the best bit about the movie. Oh no, there's a there's a great bit in the movie. And they're driving through the night, and the sun comes up when they're they're on the shore of Lake Michigan or something like that. And Bob Dylan's been driving the Winnebago, and they all get up, and the sun's coming out, and there's Allen Ginsberg and all that, and they're all round as the sun's come up, holding hands, going oh oh oh, you know, to greet the sun. And then you can hear something in the background. It goes, camera pans away, and it's Ronson and Roger McGuinn going, ding, ding, gilly, 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 of, I think it's hard rain's going to fall from the Bob Dylan thing, but Ronson takes a solo, and, and it's it's just great. He's he, he, he was so good. It was a real privilege to work with him, and I've privileged also. I became friends with the family, and when Mick was ill, everybody kind of gathered round to get him doing things, and I'm mates with his sister Maggie and well David as well, and who else was there? Not his mum, somebody else. And Tony from the Buzzcocks. We all went to Wolf and Stowe Dogs Track, you know, to take his mind off things. Put a bet on. Now, how long does it take for a ground to run around the track? Not long. <laughs> so we put bets on. The race starts. Mick starts running off. I said, where the fuck are you going? He said, that dog on the outside looks good. I'm trying to... <laughs> he's trying to put his, change his bet before the thing. Anyway, there you go. It's on Netflix, isn't it, that film? Yeah, but if not, anybody hasn't seen it, but, but not the not the dog race, not that. I that's wish it was lost in the ether. That yeah. is, you had to be there. <laughs> Pardon? <laughs> that job at Sex must have been the best retail gig in the history of retail gigs, right? When you talk about selling shoes, I mean, to have customers like that coming through the door on the regular. That's talking about privileged positions and right time, right place. Yeah, it was, but it just seemed what was. Better than working at JB Sports today. Yeah, and the money was better and all, you know. <laughs> but it was fun. I didn't realise. They'd only had a shop about a year. And they were really trying to find their way and trying to... That's why it went through changes and what they was trying to do. And, like, and Vivian, you know, basically, originally, it was just all old clothes they were selling. Then she started getting involved in making things. And then they got some kind of small commission to do some stuff for the Rocky Horror Show, which back then was just... A play at the King's Road Theatre. And I think they did some stuff for Eddie because he was supposed to be this biker type kind of thing. But Vivian started doing these T-shirts that had sort of slogans made out of chicken bones and things. And she used to say to us, she said, oh, if you... And she was vegetarian. She said, but if you're having lunch, if you go to the chicken shack over the road, keep the bones afterwards. And we'd give them to her and she'd boil them up and then turn them into T-shirts. It was... <laughs> Last little bit on that time period, um, you and Sid, uh, the band you were in, again, for about a week, what was it called, The Vicious? Oh, that was a one-off gig of The Vicious White Kids, yeah, and it was called that because it's Sid Vicious, me and Steve New were in The Rich Kids, and Rat Scabies, who played drums, had fallen out with the damned at that stage, and he was in a band called The White Cats, so Vicious White Kids. We just did a one-off gig for a laugh, and then Sid went to America. But it was good. And Sid was a good singer. He was kind of, in a way, he was like Elvis in the way that, you know, Elvis always sang somebody else's song. You know, Sid didn't have the lyrical thing that John had, but it was good. But I, would, I sort of years later, I went to see 
a friend of mine, a guy called Rob Dickens, who was a big wheel at Warner Brothers. He signed me to Warner Chapel Publishing and he was controlling WEA around the world. Um, and I went to see him about some project and he went, oh, I don't know, it's all right, Glenn, I don't know. He said, mind you, you know what the best thing you ever had was? And I said, what, a pistol or something? He went, no. I said, what then? He said, a vicious white kid. He said, it was so exciting. I said, well, why didn't you say anything? He said, well, you was all too out of it, weren't you? <laughs> I couldn't argue with that. <laughs> you had a good relationship with him then, you and Sid? Not really, but we were neighbours in, in London. It came about, we were sitting in the same pub because we were neighbours, and he said, well, you know, people seem to think we're enemies, and here we are sitting together, what can we do about it? I said, well, do we have to do anything about it? He said, well, it would be nice. I said, well, maybe we could do a gig. And he went, ah. Oh. He said, who can we get? I said, well, I'll get Steve and maybe Rats gave us. He went, that's good. He said, oh, the thing is, though, he said, I'm a bass player and you're a bass player. I said, well, I'll put it this way, he said, I'm not going to sing. <laughs> and he went, oh, who's going to sing then? I said, well, how about you sing? And he went, oh, all right. Who's going to play bass? I play bass. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we had sort of a day in our rehearsal and we did a gig at the Electric Ballroom and it was sold out and so all these people there. You know, Blondie came down and and um, I remember what's-his-face was there from Tin uh, Lizzie, you know, Phil Linnett and they all came down to check us out. It was cool. And what was good about it, it was playing away and we, did, we only had about eight or nine songs so we kept doing them over and over. <laughs> And then Paul Cook appeared at the side of the stage. He said, let's do a number. And I'd fallen out of him by then. I went, fuck off. <laughs> I, felt, I felt great. <laughs> Where I, did you first meet Slim Jim? Because the Stray Cats were kind of a fixture in London and Brighton for a while around that time, weren't well, they? Well, Is that when you first met? Kilburn. He had, uh, I, had, I had my Spectres band after Reggie in the very early 80s. I had a publicist who had a place up just down off of... Um, uh, Come on, guys. Just down. Where was it? Just down <laughs> Safeways. Just you know, down the top end of Kilburn High Road. There, there was a room. There was a, some office suites there, and I had this publicist guy, and there was a French publicist girl there. I forget her name now, but she was looking after Stray Cats before anybody had really heard of them. And I'd seen them, and I'm used to see Slim Jim about in there. You know, we we got quite matey then. And then I lost touch with him. And then when I played with the Pistols, we was in Los Angeles rehearsal, and we all went to see, um, what's that band? You know, Common People. Pulp. Pulp were playing. And they were playing at this big club that Slim Jim was running with his mate. And that was the first time I'd seen him in all that time. And then we sort of reconnected, and that was that. So... There you go. But he told me a funny story at this club. I said, I said, you do put bands on all the time? He said, but we have other events on and stuff. I said, like what? He said, he said, I'm not kidding you. So a couple of months ago, there was some film event we did. We didn't realise what it was. It's, it's, it's like the the American Porn Awards. He said that they was doing this to that to each other and then somebody else... I said, what'd you do? He said, well, I'm a good Catholic boy, the straightest guy in the room. We just locked ourselves in the office and helped the police didn't come. <laughs> so, 
He's a gent, though, isn't he, yeah, Slim he Jim? Is. He's he's a real like old fashioned kind of American. Like I know he's not southern, but that kind of like southern he, he's genteel. From, he's, he's from Wontar. He's a good Irish boy from from Long Island up there that way. Yeah, but he's got yeah he's got that kind of quality, and he's very educated. And it's funny, I was doing something a few years back pre-COVID with him, Slim Jim, uh, L Slick. He was doing a thing in oh, Bobby. Las Vegas, I think. And we just had some rehearsal place, and my mate Jim Lowe was playing bass. And we were supposed to be rehearsing, and you know, Jim says he's he's used to kind of rehearse with the Stray Cats, you know, acoustic double bass, semi-acoustic guitar, pair of sticks, telephone book. You know, he does that. So we're in a rehearsal room, which he doesn't really like doing. So he's just got he's got the New York Times crossword, on, and he's there. He's just doing that. Oh, you want to do it again? Oh. Let me just get six across right. <laughs> but it came in handy we, for a laugh a few years back. We got roped into Celebrity Pointless. And we won it. We, so I got an award indoors. But it was mainly because, they, you know, they are, when you do these things, they ask you a few questions of what you might be interested in. They don't give you the answers, but, you know, and there was some English things. And Slim Jim's going, hey, that's not fair. You know, I'm not from England. And then they asked one on American presidents. And he had to come up with a president that was a pointless answer that was like six letters or five letters or something. And he said one name, like Agnew or whatever, and he went, no, Pierce, P-E-A-R-C-E, 1903 to 1907. And he was right. He got it. Nobody got that. So there you go. As we approach the audience Q&A part of the show, I just wanted to ask you about some of your favourite places in the world that you've played because you've travelled a lot and you were telling me earlier on about playing in Korea uh, and I'd love to just get an insight into what, you know, taking rock and roll to a place like that is like and how the people received it and just your experience of that culture when you were over there because it's, it's a world away from the 100 Club, isn't it? When it's you... a world away from the 100 Club. Although, what I have found in my luckily enough travels around the world, until you go there, you don't know this, but when you do go, you just find out everybody's the same. You know, everybody wants to kind of be kind to each other, you know, feed their families, have some work, be able to let off steam without too much letter hindrance. And the same everywhere, you know. But I got invited to do this thing in, it, it was when it was getting a bit airy with North Korea, or particularly airy, and somebody had come up with this peace train thing, and we all met up in Seoul, big crowd of people, and then got this train from Seoul up to the the DMZ, which is the, the uh, demilitarized zone, and there was, um, oh, this was funny, it was a bit weird. There's a big bombed-out building there. You've probably seen pictures of, and it was the headquarters of the Communist Party, you know, when the war was going on before the country divided, and they've, they've kept it as a, um, you, know, you know, like a tribute to, to everybody. And there's a whole party, and they're putting things on for people, and they've got a dance troupe on in there and he's bombed out windows and we're like oh but it was actually quite moving right but initially it was like oh you know it's all about people being tortured which they were there oh. the other side of the road there's a car park because this is just the beginning of the demilitarized zone zone with like an organic 
um, food fair and they're selling organic honey from the demilitarized zone. Which, which I'll explain this. So this is all a bit in Congress, and you go through the demilitarized zone, and the people who are not allowed to live there, but they're allowed to go there between sunrise and sunset to farm. And it's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful farmland, but every now and then you say, what's that? And there's a big cordon affair of skull and crossbones. You don't go there because there's unexploded mines. And you go through these funny escarpments with, you know, like the bit underneath a bridge, but there's no bridge. What's that all about? They've got funny sort of things. Oh, were they booby-trapped? If they come, you know, if the North Koreans come, they can just blow them up at a moment's note. And you're driving through them, and you're like, whoa. Anyway, you get a couple of miles, you get to where there's this bombed-out train, and they had a small little concert there. I didn't play there. There was another thing going on. And there's this big, weird hill. And um, there's some steps going up. I said, that's a weird hill. And they said, well, actually, it was built by the South Koreans as an anti-tank thing. You know, really high, you know, 30, 40 feet high. But with these stairs going up. And I said, well, if you go up there, can you see North Korea? And they said, yeah, but that's not what the stairs are for. I said, well, what's the stairs for? And they said, well, because nobody lives here, it's, you know, it's quite natural habitat and stuff and if you go up there as a bird sanctuary because there's a rare breed of ibis that thrives because nobody lives there anymore and it was like but there's tanks there and they're going to blow it up and then we're, we're bird watching it was like really fucking weird you know just but until you go there you don't realise that I thought it was going to be all doom and gloom and we're going to get nukes and they was all quite happy about it <laughs> oh alright so whether I help change the course of world politics, I doubt it, but I went and found out for myself. The other side of the coin, with the same people, there's these people who organise these sort of alternative festivals around the world, with the same people. I went to Ramallah in Palestine to do this PMX festival, and I was like the guest of honour there. And it, the idea, it was like a showcase for Palestinian musicians who really don't have a lot going for them over there. And when you see what goes on there, it's like, and um, I had to learn three or four songs with the put-together band, and there's all these different people doing different, you know, like traditional, you know, playing ouds, and then somebody's rapping, and, oh, there was this great guy called Dave, I met with him, and he looked like he could come from Tottenham, you know, he's all dressed up in, you know, all right, man, how are you doing like that, but Palestinian. So, and I got him really well, you know, Fred Perry, right? Right. And I'm... And everybody did like three or four songs and I'm watching him and I had a bit of a cold at the time so I'd seen about a dozen people do three or four songs and I'm at the back of the hall having a sit down and there was a couple of nice looking girls. I thought, ooh, and they had this funny package, you know, a big flat package, like an art folder thing but like homemade with this older sort of mumsy kind of woman there. And I thought it's a bit of a weird, odd thing. Anyway, Dave came on they opened up this package. They've made a homemade sign, which would be almost twice as big. And they were Dave, this guy's sisters, and it was his mum. And Dave, we love you. And it was really sweet. But then the security guard came over and made him put it down. And as soon as he'd gone, I said, no, don't do that. You know, open it up. And, and the mum said, said, she said, no, 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 we are Palestinians. We must obey the rules. And I was like, my heart nearly broke. It was horrible. It was sad. But anyway, so I have to play with these guys, 
well, I wanted to play with these guys, but we had to rehearse. So they took me to their rehearsal place in the middle of Ramallah, just off the side street, off the I Street, which was up the stairs above the Western Bridal Wear shop, and it was like a kid's um, place where they learned the recorder and the ude. And, and, you know, I'm getting the drums out, but they go, oh, no, no, you're a guest. Oh, no, this is great. It was one of the best things I ever did. It was fantastic, you know, just seeing how the other half live. But then you see, you know, and then we went to Bethlehem and we went to Jerusalem and it was a bit indoctrinated, but you do see, you know, that it takes two hours to get through the the border. Mm, yeah. Travel's so important. I think you've got to see, as you say, how other cultures live to appreciate the things about home that, you know, you're lucky to have. And when we live in a country like England, as fucked as it is. Yeah, but you know what? We're only lucky if we continue to keep up, kick up about it and keep them on their toes because a lot of people over here would have us going that way, I think. So that's my thought for the day, to be honest. So if there's a chance to go on a march or wave a placard, do it, otherwise you won't be able to. I think, anyway. Don't here, here. take your freedom for granted. My last question to you, Glenn, before we open it up to the room, is this, is do you feel like the Sex Pistols changed the world? In in what way? That's a loaded question. In in any way, in, in a sense that you showed that music could challenge authority and you know inspired well, okay yeah i think i think we did that for the time when you put us against bands like racy or <laughs> well rubettes you know oh do you know that blinking bloke the singer he came into mountain mclaren shop when it was a a teddy boy shop and said that he designed the draped jacket i slung him out i said of course you didn't and he's got long hair and flared drain pipe trousers with flares okay get out of it and he's like Whoa. But when he put us against things like that, yes, we did. But, you know, there's, again, it's a baton race. There's always been loads of things, you know. Uh, Buffalo Springfield, what's going on with the Vietnam War? Um, you know, what's, what's it called? For what it's worth, you know, what's going on? You know, it's, it's, it's a tradition of things like that. And maybe we kind of did it with knobs on then. I don't really know that we was that political. We just spoke our mind, and in the in the in the um, climate at the time. But I, when you're involved with something like that, you kind of see how things work. I remember after the Bill Grundy show, we did some interviews at EMI Manchester Square, and there was a photo call, and we had to sit and have a picture taken for the Sun or the Mail or something like that. And the photographers are always a laugh. Oh, come on, lads. They're one of the lads. They get the picture. Can you sit a bit close together? I'd had a can of beer. I burped. I went, oh, pardon me. And the next day in the paper when it came out, and when they asked to sit closer together for the photo, bass player Glenn Matlock just belched. <laughs> and that was the first time that happened. I thought, oh, so that's how it works, is it? You know, you, until you do things like that, you you don't. Really no. Where am I going with this? Um, the press are cunts. <laughs> You're right. I know I'm in it. I like to think I'm in it, but not of it. And and people do twist the truth to fit their narrative. And when you blow up in such a fast way like that band did at that time, it becomes out of your control, doesn't it? And you're no longer the driver and the you know the seat of your own life. Yeah. All right. Okay. He's right. But what I was going to go on to say because I lost my train of thought for a second, but. 
through being able to go around the world, whether it was Japan, South America, states and all that, it seems these days that people's fallback protest posi- position musically is punk. Everybody around the world, it's become like a common currency and they think if you're sort of a bit left the field or you've got an axe to grind, then you play, you play punk music. So it doesn't necessarily sound like punk. That's the kind of pose that people adopt, and I suppose I was kind of semi-involved in making that come about, but even to this day, you know. So it's kind of interesting that nobody says they was a hip, they're a hippie, or they don't to me anyway, you know, but I can tell. <laughs> but on the other hand, hanging around with Slim Jim Phantom and El Slick, I have become partial to a cravat. <laughs> got to be done it's got to be done Go away. so let's go down here at the front to start this man here in the white t-shirt with the the day glow wristband it's uh, this is a generation x t-shirt there he is glenn could i ask you a question about the uh, anarchy tour uh, obviously all the bands that were on there at the time they had a bit of a falling out sort of musically was it the, the bands that fell out, or was it the managers? I mean, obviously, Bernie, well, uh, think, Jake I think, Riviera. I think you've hit the nail on the head then, really. I don't think the bands really fell out, but Malcolm McLaren and Jake Riviera didn't see eye to eye, and that was why he started swinging me at me, at that thing I was telling you about earlier on. But he was managing the damned, and I remember watching... The dam that leads Polly, which is one of a few gigs, I thought the dam were all right. My Malcolm came up to me and he said, they're not very good, are they? They're bringing the whole thing down. <laughs> and I thought, no, they're all right. And then the next thing, oh, oh, oh. And then there was this other thing going on, was that we had a, a coach, which everybody, well, we paid for it, really, but people were supposed to chip in. And the dam wouldn't do that, and I, I think really, I think really they wouldn't do it because on some of the nights off they'd already still had some other gigs, so they needed to get around. But Malcolm saw that as a slight, and you know, and we're not all in it together, and there was this thing going on with Jake and that. So yes, that was going on, but I, I think with a clash and the heartbreakers, it was it was fine, really. Why did you say that? Well, I, I do a fancy Right, what did they say then? They felt quite hard done by at the time, very hard done by, because they sort of felt as if uh, they were being sort of, they felt felt like the Sex Pistols had been on the Grundy show and got an audience, and before that the Damned had got quite a sort of big crowd that had gone along with them, and sort of they thought they were being just thrown to the side and that. Well, that, 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 I mean, what I just told you is what I know about, and it's kind of why, but on the other hand... And I like the guys from the dams and good luck to them. But, you know, they always had to be the first out with this and all that. But we would be happy being the best. <laughs> right. And, and also, also on, on the, the Anarchy Tour poster, they insisted that they said they had their single on it. And they were a bit daftish, you know, that he... he is a bit too quick off the mark, is a bit too quick off the mark. And I insist that it had, you know, um, neuros available from your dumbest record dealer, or from even your dumbest record dealer. But of course, we put on Anakin in the UK, available from your cleverest. <laughs> <laughs> so they kind of, 
they were the masters of their own destiny and all that. But I think it was more to do with the, the management and stuff. Gentlemen in the green. And, and yeah, right. I'll just say one more thing. When I played with Iggy, we did a tour of Europe and it didn't quite work out with a band. I maybe had something to do with that. And then I played and I wanted to get Steve New to do it. And then something happened with him punching David Bowie down the stairs because he thought he was chatting up his girlfriend, which he was, oh. but he was only chatting up his girlfriend because she thought... He thought she had some cigarettes stashed in the studio in Rockfield in the middle of the countryside at four o'clock in the morning. And then Steve didn't do it at the last, the tour at the last minute. Brian James stood in. He was great. He was really good, you know. And he had that whole MC5 Stooges thing down. And also, one of the songs we did on that tour, we did quarter to three, you know, but um, set him up Joe, you know, Frank Sinatra song. And I sort of played the bass like Albatross on it. And he got a standing ovation every night for his guitar solo on it. It's good. Didn't help though that my missus at the time, Celia, when we was doing it, she came over to America and we was doing the song, and she told Iggy that we was doing it wrong. But she was right because he'd forgotten the middle eight bit. You know, hey, da, 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 da. she was right, but it didn't go down very well. <laughs> so yeah, there you go. What's your question, bud? Glenn. Hi there. Hi, um, apropos Max's last question about whether the, you guys changed the world, well, you did change the musical world, and I should ask you about the songwriting, but I hope we'll hear more about that in the second half. Well, I'm just going to play some songs. Okay, so. well, I've got three quick ones then. I've done my chat. <laughs> okay, well, three quick questions. A, about the TV series, which you kind of alluded to. Um, oh, with ju- didn't mention it once. No. <laughs> then the, the TV show... Faces, album, gigs, anything coming up. And my pal Paul, who can't be here tonight, saw you with Thunder, uh, Holloway Road, years ago, wanted me to ask about that. Saw me where? Thunder? What, rehearsal? No, a gig at the Polytechnic, Holloway Road, with the the Heartbreakers. Who? He saw you there years ago. What, playing? Yeah, yeah. Can't remember. No, he, that's what he told me to ask you. <laughs> right, I'm going to deal with that one first. The only time I played with Johnny Thunders in this country was at Dingwalls. Yeah. Right, I, t- I played with him in, in Japan, did one gig in Stockholm, and Terra Spain and Australia, and one gig in England. So it wasn't me. Unless I was very, very, very drunk. <laughs> Which might have been the case back then, right? Um, faces. I've, I, that was one of the biggest things I've ever done in my life. It's my all-time favourite band. It's the band that um, I used to stand in front of the mirror when I was learning to play the guitar when I was 14, pretending I was Ronnie Lane. We didn't do that many gigs, sadly, because the fucking Rolling Stones keep calling Ronnie Wood up and blowing it, right? Um, and then the last gig I did with them was the Fuji Festival in Japan, 50,000 people, a band that I used to stand in front of. That was great. And also, I took my son, my younger son there, and he sort of was a bit of a keen sportsman, but he'd done something with his leg and he wasn't feeling that good about himself. So I bought him a cheap, but first starter SLR camera so he learnt, could learn how to do it and he came with me we had first class seats I swapped my first class seat for two um, 
premium economy ones, and Louis came with me, right, on tour with the faces in Japan. Well, we did one show at the Fuji Festival, and then I had a couple of other solo things hung up, and it was just after that, um, you know, the meltdown at the, the um, what's it, Fukuyama? Fukushima. Fukushima plant. The faces did the gig and went home. We went down to, to Kobe and hung out and stuff. But when we go to do the, the gig... I've got my boy Louis, he was, maybe he was about 12 or 13 then. We're going to play, and I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do with him? You know, I've got to go on stage. And my mate, you know, Chris Musto was there. He works for Smash, who put on a thing. I said, what am I going to do with him? He said, I'll, I'll sort it, don't worry. Anyway, so you go on stage, and when you do these big gigs, you have a photographer's pit, well, a mosh pit, but a photographer's pit, and they're allowed to be there for the first three numbers. And then I have to fuck off, you know. Because I don't know why, but they I've do. never known that three song rule. Take your take your snacks, fuck off. Let the bang, let the bang get on with it. So three songs, out, and then we're full song in, playing away. And Ronnie Wood comes up to me and he's banging into me. He's going, "What? And I'm concentrating on what I'm doing. He's, bang, he's going, well, anyway. But then we go straight into the fifth song, and I'm playing away, and he's going. So I look up, 50,000 people, photographer pit, nobody in it, apart from my son Louis. He goes, click, click. He took these really good pictures and the faces used them on their website. <laughs> so that was kind of good. So there you go. Um, but you was going to ask, I got a phone call from Ronnie Taylor in the last summer. He said, what are you doing? Will you come and do some bass around my house? And I said, well, I'm not around. I'm out for a drive. I said, I can come back if you want. He said, no, 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 never mind, Ali. He said, we'll go in the studio. So I went in the studio the next day with him and Kenny, um, um, the guy, Matt, what's his face, who plays keyboards in the Stones now. And we put some tracks down, and the next day we did some more stuff. Um, and Jules Holland came down and played. It was great. We did four or five songs. And they were looking at, I don't want to say too much, but they were looking at some older stuff. And Rod Stewart was supposed to be singing on it at a later stage. He wasn't there. Right? And some of the songs I had to change the keys for. And one of the songs, I got down early the next day, one of the songs, I didn't know what key it was going to be in, but I said, well, let me put the track up and I can learn it and then I'll transpose it when they decide what key it's going to be. So it's just me and the engineer there and they're playing it. I'm not kidding you, it's the faces from like 1975. I pulled the bass out, I can't remember if it's Tetsu or Ronnie Lane but it's like Mac, Kenny Jones, Ronnie Wood playing, Rod Stewart doing a guide vocal. All right, and there's this sort of rocking, and it sounded a bit pistolsy, but it was just before the pistolsy. And um, Rod Stewart goes, you know, this is all on the cans, right? It goes, one, two, three, four, one, intro. <laughs> goes round again, right, first. <laughs> Bridge. <laughs> back, back to the chorus. <laughs> goes round again. So he's doing like a guide vocal. I'm playing. I want all my fucking mates to be there because I'm playing with the faces in 1975. And it's just a fucking engineer. <laughs> I, well, I haven't heard any more. I don't know. Because you know what? Fucking Rolling Stones. <laughs> <laughs> After that. 
Yeah, so who knows? But I just like playing with them. They're good players and stuff. Oh, it was funny. I was in the studio. Don't tell anybody this, right? In the studio, we're playing this song, and it's going... Doo, 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 doo. I don't tell you how the songs go. you just got to play... Ronnie's going down. So I'm on the bass and going... And he's playing the wedding. He turns around, stand a fucking D, the G's my bit. All right. <laughs> and what was the third? Was it the TV series? Oh, yes. Do you want to get into that, Glenn? The, yeah, which oh, obviously you said the three of you and Rotten, but uh, yeah, obviously legally stuff. Well, that's on. all sorted out now. It's been okay. made, it's coming out. And I think. I haven't seen it yet. I've, I've met Danny Ball and chats and went down to filming of one thing and looks interesting. Met the guys playing me a few times. Met his mum and dad as well, which is kind of cool. Um, who, it turns out, his mum and dad were... Um, his mum's a singer and his dad's a drummer. And I used to be in the cabaret band on a QE2 and he used to go on holiday with them, so he's sort of a bit of a... Uh, anyway, it's... It's all beginning to start happening, maybe towards the end of May. But I don't really know more than that. But I'm waiting to find out myself. Will you watch it? <sighs> don't know. I mean, it's based on Steve's book, which I've got on the side. I've read it on the side for ages, and people said it's good, and he's kind of quite even-handed. I haven't read it. I don't see why I should have to. And maybe it's one of those things I might read when I'm in the nursing home. <laughs> but not yet. And then I, now it's become a bit of a sword of Damocles that like I should read it, but it's a bit late now because the movie's being made. And, hmm, I don't know. And, you know, and contrary to popular opinion, I don't, you know, people send me clips of me doing, I hate watching it. You know, you're all like, I'm a Virgo, I just pick holes in everything, you know, so. Any other questions? There we go. Let's go with the uh, person in the middle there. Hello, Brian from Glasgow. No offence, it mids your mother's accent. I was going to say, it's going to be the accent. It's going to be the accent. <laughs> None taken. Hang on, I want to hear your Cockney accent. <laughs> Two shit. Diamond geezer, mate. Diamond geezer. Oh, all right. <laughs> uh, you mentioned Steve New. Yeah. And you you were always mates with him right to the very end. He didn't have his troubles to seek, did he? Medically and all that. What what light was it in the days working with him when all this thing was happening? Stella, Nova and everything. It must have been really strange back then. Well, when I know. played with him and the rich kids initially, he was just some young bloke who was a bit wayward and not that wayward at the time. It became more that way when it didn't quite work out and things didn't happen for him and he sort of went down a, I don't know, I'm sure he alluded to a bit druggy and stuff. But I was always trying to get him to do things. I mean, I got him the gig with Iggy, which he could have done, and then he sort of had his head swayed by the girl he was seeing at the time and ended up not doing it. And there was always these things that he, he had to be... Some people have to think they're so cool all the time that they don't, you know, make some kind of little balance of what's a good career move or what have you, you know? And then you paint yourself... And so I think Steve painted himself into corner a bit 
but he was a fantastic musician. He wrote some great songs which never really heard the light of day that were very interesting. And really, we should have made a Rich Kid's second album, but it kind of fell apart because of the new romantic thing coming in. And we all were a little bit... Um, I don't know, we all lost out somehow that we didn't do that. Maybe it would have come good. But, you know, you're young and there's all these pressures and stuff in bands. You don't always make... You can't see the wood for the trees sometimes. You don't always make the best decision. And as you get older, you think, well, mm, should have done that. But I was young. And I can't beat myself up about it, you know, because there's always tomorrow. But then Steve got ill. And, and the sad thing with Steve is that you know, he's had a bit of a reputation for being a bit of a druggy, which he got over a bit and stuff. But he passed away of, of something that was nothing to do with, you know, his input. It, it was some hereditary cancer thing. So it, it was kind of sad, really, you know. Did, did you know Steve? You... No, no, I didn't. I don't know. Uh, next question. We'll come back to you, dude, down the front here. We'll go there first. While we're waiting for the next instalment of your wonderful autobiography, who would actually play you in a film and who would you have directing it? Oh, that's interesting. Well, if, if it could be anybody in the world from any time whatsoever, in an ideal, Dudley Moore. <laughs> no, direct it, I don't know. Um, Richard Lester. Where's Anderson? Where's Anderson? Yeah. All right. Well, I don't know. Where's Anderson? Ewan McGregor. Ewan McGregor? What, to play me or to direct it? Both. Both. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> is a second book on the cards, Glenn? Obviously, the first one is predominantly focused on, on the Pistols um, story is the plan to write another one about everything else and everything since? And... Or are you still living for now? Can't find my borrow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's a couple of people asked me to do... Somebody's asked me to do a book of lyrics with, you know, the stories behind them, which I might be doing. But I, I'm, I'm actually... Not that busy at the moment, but I'm going to be busy. I've, 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 people don't know, but I've not long signed, you know, for a bloke who's 65 and a half, I've just signed Universal Records. I've got a great new record in the can, which is about to come out. Um, you know, and there's a lot of work setting all that up. And to write a book, you know, which I did before, it takes a big chunk of time, as you know, out of your life, you know, and instead of going on with what's going forward, you're looking backwards. And it, and then I've got this don't say well I should have to mentality. So you got to want to do it, haven't you? Only then will it be good. It's like anything in life, you know. I mean, I I used to drink too much, and I knocked it on the head a long time ago. But I struggled to stop, and the only time I could stop was when I really wanted to. You know, how there's how a difference between knowing you ought to and actually wanting to. A long time, thirty years, you know. Yeah, I'm not on any kind of crusade or anything, but it's, I think that, I don't 
don't know, kind of drugs, which I was never really a druggie at all, but drink. But I think when you're born, you get a this sort of kind of mental book of all the drinks you could have all through your life, and some people manage to eke it out, and some people have it all in one go. <laughs> yeah, it's fun till it isn't fun, as no. the saying goes. Uh, down on the front here, Terry, if that's all right. What is the one song that you wish you had wrote? If you could have written any song over time, what is the one song that you wish oh, was yours? There's so many great songs. Off the top of my head, Grooving by the Young Rascals. So it's one of the most uplifting, fantastic songs ever. Heroes. What kind of fool am I, Anthony Newley? From Russia We Love. Great singing by Matt Monroe. That's great. Wish I'd written Things Ain't What They Used To Be. <laughs> Lionel Bart. Two songs from Lionel Bart there. It's got a great line in it. Things Ain't What They Used To Be. It sets the tone of the time that they was in. I mean, this is... I think this this these, this little couplet is so good. It sort of sums up where it was at. There's Ted's in coffee houses and... De no, there's Deb's in drainpipe. Start again. There's Ted's in drainpipe trousers and Deb's... You know, debutantes in coffee houses and things ain't what they used to be. And it was all about the change in society. It's a fantastic little line. What's your favourite Pistols song, Glenn? Silver Machine. <laughs> Here I am, Silver Machine. Did, you, did you know Lemmy? Did you have a yeah, cut I'm, loose I'm, with him? Yeah. Yeah. Lemmy a few times. Yeah, funny story. Slim Jew had a band with Lemmy called the Headcat. They had sort of like a rock and roll thing and he was supposed to be doing Steve Jones's radio show. All right. In the morning. And Lemmy goes there. Slim Jim picks Lemmy up and they go to K-Rock. K-L-O-S. Yeah, right, that yep. one back then. And they get there and there's all the secretary girls outside crying. And Steve's on the step outside, and the door's locked. They shut the station down. It's not the one he was doing now. It was one he was doing a few years ago. And Jim was livid. He felt really sorry for them all. But nobody called him. And do you know how fucking hard it is to get Lemmy up and across L.A. for 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> I had a mate who used to tour manage Lemmy and he said he came to pick him up one day and Lemmy opened the door in his little like, you know, short shorts and just what he had on and he walked out the door and he's like, Well then we're going on tour for like two months. Do you not want to bring a bag at least? He's like, Oh yeah, you're right. He goes in, he comes back with an orange. He's like, oh, good to go. <laughs> one of a kind. One of a kind. Uh any other questions before we go to the break? Got time for a couple more if uh, you want to ask, speak now or forever hold your peace. We'll come back to you down the front. Any girls at the back there? Yeah, me. Um, yeah, me. yeah, Glenn, I was just going to ask, uh, can you tell us a bit more about your new record and um, signing to Universal? Um, can I tell you more about it? Um, what can I tell you about it? What's it called? Who produced it? I produced it. I've got, I've got good people on it. Um, I've got my regular band over here and then Clem play, but plays on the track and they all slicks on it. I've got a guy called Hot Eye plays on it. A guy called He's James, amazing. James, he James Hallowell um, on it. It's kind of 
I don't know, it's like where I'm at now. The album's going to be called Consequences Coming because I think there are going to be, hopefully. I might play a couple of songs from it later on. They're like acoustical kind of. It's good, but it's kind of... I don't know, it's just me. So, if you like that, you like that. But it's, it's good, you know. So yeah. I, I don't really know what I can say about it. I mean, I don't know what I can say like the pistols. What's the pistols like? It's all right. I mean, most things in life are all right if you like that kind of thing. <laughs> That's the quote for the book, isn't it? It's all right if you like that kind of thing. Uh, your question down the front here. What riches? Will there be a rich kids reunion anytime soon? Um. Uh... We haven't spoken about it. I wouldn't say no. I'm proud of it. There's some good stuff there. Um, it always sounded quite good when we did it. But everybody's got lives to lead. The thing is, people don't realise, you know, even with the guys from the Pistols, right, everybody tries to do something. You know, Steve's DJing thing, John does his public image thing, Paul's got his professional thing, I'll do what I kind of do. Something like that, or even the rich kids, you know, Midge and blah, 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 blah. Because they're bigger things, you have to ditch what you've been doing and forget about it for six months, a year. There's a whole lot of setting up. There's a whole load of headspace. And it might be successful and everybody loves reliving the good old days and how great... And then when you go back to what you're doing, you've got to start from fucking scratch again. You know, and it... it it's a frustration. So, I mean, it's not the worst thing in the world, but it is still a frustration. And that's why people aren't, you know, Midge does quite well off his own back. Yeah. Why should he go and do that? I mean, the original reason we reformed, Midge called me up and Steve was there when he said, can we give him some kind of testimonial? That's why we did it, which we all agreed with, you know. But, um, yeah. So we've got time for one more, if anybody wants the final question. Down here on the front, yes. Uh, Terry, lady with the blonde hair, if we, can, if we can get the mic to her. Thoughts on Malcolm McLaren? I don't think you've ever been asked this one before, have you? <laughs> Ooh. He was very interesting, bloke. He... At Malcolm McLaren's funeral which I went to, not the funeral, but the, you know, the, the, serp, not a, a memorial. memorial thing, but it was before the burial, but he was there, but it wasn't the actual funeral thing. It was, it was all a bit weird, but Steve Jones sent a, a note over because he wasn't there. Start, and, the, and Joe Corey wrote it out, Malcolm's son, and he said, Malcolm, where's all the fucking money? <laughs> Shall I bring a crowbar over and open a coffin to see if you're taking it with it? Which was a joke, but then he went on to say, it was a pleasure meeting you. I was just some kind of thief, oik, not me, but Steve, and you changed my world by your influence and stuff, which he did. And he did for me as well, in a different way to Steve. But when he was in with Malcolm, he was in with him, and as soon as he was out with him, he was out. And he... I left the Sex Pistols because I wasn't getting on with John and I 
looking back now, well, there was something about him that I couldn't quite put my finger on, but now I've seen his support for Farage and Trump, I kind of realise why. I never found John very sincere. So I, for a number of reasons, I left. And we all shook hands on it. And then Malcolm McLaren sent a, a telegram to the enemy saying I'd been sacked because I liked the Beatles too much, which just wasn't true. And it was cuntish, which is quite a good adjective, I think, in certain <laughs> you know, it's the, word the, for the, day. The, the English language is great. It's got very specific nuances and you know because we've got germanic and a latin and a french influence there's loads of different ways you can say something you can put a slightly different nuance in it but a cunt is a cunt <laughs> and um that's what i thought it was and i thought it was two-faced behind my back when we were already shaking hands with it. and then the bastard they started rehearsing my seed he called me up and said it's not working out will you rejoin after he sent the thing to the NWS, i mean he's fucking joking what do you think, I'm some kind of schmuck or a schmuck? No. So there you go. So it was great when he was in, and he was not when he was out. And I'm not the only person who said that about him for other things that he's done. But he's a very interesting bloke. And funny as well. I remember the first time we went to Paris, We well, the only time we went to Paris with the Pistols, he kind of walked us around. We was playing in the evening, and we was over there for a long weekend, and... He walked us around by, you know, Saint-Germain-de-Prey and around by the Sorbonne and Lodion and all that. And I said to Malcolm, I said, look, that's fantastic. He said, what? I said, they know the lyrics to our songs already. He said, what do you mean? And it says, Viva Lanashi on the wall. And he just went. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but Malcolm, he actually turned me one of my favourite records, I still play quite a lot, is... Um, is uh, the soundtrack to L'Argent Provocateurs by um, oh, what's on? Art Blakey and his Jazz Messengers. And it's the soundtrack to this French movie called Les Argent Provocateurs. And Malcolm, and he, before we had a jukebox in the shop, we had a little old radiogram and he had this record. And he explained to me it was like the beatnik movie at the time. So Malcolm was this sort of beatnik, really. You know, and then going to Paris and with him, he was like reliving his his days and sort of hanging around, you know, the Francois Hardy kind of school of things. So there was all that going on that sort of came through, you know. When did you last speak to Malcolm? Was it when you left the band or did you speak to him after? I think the last time I spoke to him was when I told you earlier on about having a meal with Iggy Pop in Paris and he freeloaded. I think it's the last time I saw him, but where I live, down in Maid of Hour, there's a restaurant called the Red Pepper. And I did walk past once and he was sitting in the window and he was obviously freeloading another meal and sort of <laughs> expanding. I saw him and I went. <laughs> All right, I think... Sorry, was someone going to say something then? We got one more. Go on. Go on. Oh, I did, actually, yeah, I forgot about that. Great crowd tonight, picking up the slack. <laughs> yes, I did, I forgot about that. That was a long time ago now, and I was walking down the street, and he was coming the other way in the university place with this um, sort of Asian-looking girl who turned out was his partner, I found out after, was with a clipboard, and Malcolm was 
In fact, this is really funny, actually. It squares the whole circle. Because he was there, and I don't think he saw me, or if he did, he pretended he didn't see me. But I was feeling good about myself. I had a great suit on, I had a suntan. And as we sort of went, I went, Malcolm. He went, Matlock, what are you doing here? I said, well, this and that, you know, what are you up to? And he went, oh, well, and he was sort of back. I think he thought I was going to land in one, but I wasn't going to do that, <laughs> that at all. But I didn't want him to walk past with him thinking that I was living in a squat in Neesden. <laughs> if he thought that. And, and um, so that was that. But it turned out he was ill then. He didn't look ill then, but he died within six months of that. You know, the asbestosis thing, which is um, kind of gets you really quickly and stuff. So that was sad because I never really had a chance to kind of make up with Malcolm at some stage, which as you get older, you think you can do that. But talking about square in a circle, I remember when I was still at school, when I was about 15, we went on a school trip to the science museum and we went on a coach and it dropped us off outside the natural history museum and then we had to get out and walk up exhibition road now i found out later years that the science museum and the natural history museum is just the other side of exhibition road to the vna and as we all got out of the coach, there was a teddy boy walking along, chatting to a woman who was a dwarf. And it was must have been Malcolm and Helen, who I loved Helen. I've met her, like, but I didn't know her then. But it's funny, the last time I saw him was in New York talking to a woman, expounding, you know. And the first time I'd actually ever seen him, before I knew him, he was with Helen. So, there you go. Anyway, I need a wee. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for being respectful and attentive. Uh, please join me in saying thank you to Glenn for sharing some stories there. I've been Matt Stocks. Please check out my podcast. And uh, we're going to take a break here. And then Glenn's going to come back and sing and play some songs for you all. All right. But can you do that? Because I'm the star attraction. I need a wee. Let Glenn and go I... for a wee first, and ladies and gents. Let me get on with it. <laughs> right. uh, thank you very much. Enjoy the rest of your show, guys. Cheers. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.